Thank you. Good morning. I have on my Ghanaian shirt. Uh, Sarah Amiel's not in here, but I'm thankful. You could tell her I'm thankful because she helped my wife pick the shirt out. And so I feel like now I blend in completely. No one, will ever, can, no one can tell I'm not done the Ghanaian now. So there will be no distraction up here. We'll be okay. Uh, so my name is Matt Reagan. I was up just a minute ago, and we've been here for three weeks, as we said, with Campus Outreach, partnering with the team here and um, connecting to college students on the campus and learning more about the spiritual climate here in Accra. And Lord willing, uh, this is just the continuation of a long-term partnership between us and Redeemer City Church Accra. But we have been, again, just abundantly thankful uh, for our time with you and cannot express our gratitude enough. Uh, before we jump into the passage... I want to make a couple of disclaimers just kind of to frame our time. The first is that in the USA, I talk fast. In Ghana, I talk really fast, uh, the English, okay? So I want to give you the right to slow me down, okay? So if I go too fast, I'm going to give you the right to do this, <laughs> okay? You could just put your hand like this. I realize that because of Ghanaian hospitality and, and culture, no one's probably going to do that to me. Unless I were in traffic, because when I'm in traffic, people are like very aggressive. I've learned this here. I've been driving for three weeks and have, I'm still alive. But, uh, <laughs> but in, in traffic, people are very direct and very aggressive. And I was in an intersection last night and we just got stuck. When I say got stuck, like everyone was just there and no car could move and we were just stuck. But everybody said, I'm, I'm going to get my way, and they move. But as soon as I get into conversation with a Ghanaian, they say, please, 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 me pacho, me pacho. It's very polite, right? Me pacho, all the time. And so try to be like in traffic Ghanaians and slow me down, okay? You could be aggressive toward me during the sermon. The second disclaimer I want to give before we jump in is this. One of my favorite things about this church is your playfulness and how you play together. And there's a running joke in this church. And it's one of my favorite things. It is that everybody messes with Keith. And, and they call him the reverend or the bishop or bishop, bishop, and all these things. They, they say that to him wherever they bow. They say the reverend, the reverend, pastor, shepherd, miller, like this. And it's like any time. It's hilarious to me that like everybody's in on the joke. And the best thing is to see Keith kind of all shucks and, and put it aside. But I thought it was interesting because I know that that joke is, um, it's just plain, right? It's just it's a joke to play with you, but it comes out of a culture, right? That, that the idea of the pastor, the idea of someone standing here and preaching the word to you is way up here. And so there's the reverend, there's the bishop. I don't want the joke to end because I think it's funny. So I, th I, I think it's fine. Uh, but I, you know, I got it a little bit this week. Someone will say, Reverend, you know, Reverend Matt. It's like, no, no, just, just Matt is fine. Uh, but I think it's, it's important, especially from week to week. Like Pastor Sam was up here the last couple weeks. I'm standing here now. There will be others. You know, the bishop right there comes up sometimes. Uh, but just to say, 2 Corinthians 4 says very clearly, we carry this treasure in jars of clay so that the surpassing power will belong to God and not to us. That there is one treasure. It's the person and work of Jesus, Jesus Christ. In the pastor, it says, one letter earlier in 1 Corinthians, is nothing. The person who plants, the person who waters, nothing. Only God who causes the growth. So when I stand here, I want you to know I am a broken jar of clay. I carry a treasure. 
It's an unbelievable treasure, and hopefully we will feel that treasure. But all the power, all the value belongs to him and not to us. In our brokenness, uh, my weakness, my talking too fast, whatever it might be, serves hopefully to magnify that there is one who has the power, and there is only one, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? So, uh, as we go, I just want to remember, and hopefully this sermon will do this, that, that there's the idea, there's a quote from a, a German theologian who mentored Martin Luther, and he said, his name was Dr. Staupitz, and he said, I like it well that the gospel you preach gives all glory to God and none to man, for never can too much glory or wisdom or honor be given to God. And I want to live that, and I hope that our, my words today will, will speak that, and I'll be a jar of clay along the way, but it is a sweet thing to be removed from the picture that we might gaze upon the glory of God. So, Lord willing, that will happen this morning. Let me pray, uh, and then we'll talk about the text. Father God, this morning, I ask that we would really taste that you are the treasure. I pray that we would not be like those in the Areopagus who just like to learn about something, tell or hear about something new. I pray that this morning would not simply be an intellectual endeavor, but that you would work, Holy Spirit, to help us feel the things that we ought to feel, about the things that we ought to think, and then go and live and love neighbor and exalt your name because we feel the right things, we think the right things, and ultimately we lift up your name. So use your word to that end, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So when we look at this passage in, in Acts 17, we've been going along following, really following the, the missionary journeys of Paul, the Apostle Paul. And when we get to chapter 17, they go to Thessalonica, Paul and Silas do, and then there, there's, a, there's something of a, I'm trying to think of the word, like a riot almost, and in, Thessala, in Thessalonica, and so they moved to Berea, the Jews followed them there, they were angry, and then Paul ended up in Athens, and now we get a little look into Paul's perspective at what's going on in Athens and how he approaches this culture. This passage has been dissected by many, many, many evangelists and missionaries over time because it's a picture of how Paul, the, the big word would be contextualizes to a culture. It's how he sees a culture and says, I want to meet them where they are. And when I read this passage, I start doing the same thing. I start asking myself, okay, what is Paul doing here? Where is, how is he arranging his message? How is he thinking for the people in Athens? And I start thinking as a minister, but I start thinking as a minister before I receive Paul's sermon in verses 24 and following, okay? In other words, if you just want to take the, the series titled The Gospel to All Insiders and Outsiders, even that, sometimes I will think, the insiders are the Jews, the outsiders are the Gentiles, but I forget that the gospel needs to come to me first. And I tend to skip the step when I read Acts 17 of receiving the message of the gospel for me. I kind of, I take it for granted, right? And so, even when we do this, when, when, when Kristen was just up here reading Acts 17, 16 through 34, maybe we were already thinking, because we've been doing evangelism training during, during worship, the, the worship hour, or because we just prayed for missions, we prayed for campus outreach. Maybe you've been thinking for your family member, or maybe the person sitting next to you, uh, that we skip the step of thinking, feeling, receiving the message of the gospel for us. And I have found personally that I have something like gospel amnesia, 
Like, I'll remember for a little while, and then I forget. Like, like Dory from Finding Nemo, if you've ever seen that movie. I, there may be, I don't know. I just, I, I'm intrigued. How many people in the room have ever seen Finding Nemo before? Some, okay. So the idea is I could remember the gospel for a few minutes, but after a few minutes, my own performance, my own righteousness, my own service to God, my own ability to minister the gospel well, that starts to creep in, and I start to forget the gospel for me and all that God is for me in Christ. And so what I would like to do is to take this passage first for us, especially verses 24 to 29, a passage that honestly absolutely changed my life, transformed my life, and then come back around and look at the gospel for them. So the gospel for us first and then the gospel for them as we see Paul in Athens and then how that applies to us in Accra. So I'm going to read again verses 24 to 29, just 24 to 29, and we're going to look at this passage. So it says this, Paul says to the people in the Areopagus in Athens, he says, after seeing their idol to the unknown God, he says, I'm going to tell you who this God is that you think you're worshiping, but this unknown God is the God who made the world and everything in it. He being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. This passage, even, even all the way to verse 32, one, when Paul talks briefly about Jesus or a man that he has appointed and then rose him, raised him from the dead, this passage is not the whole gospel. It is, it is the foundation of the gospel as Paul is preaching. But this foundation of the gospel, I think for us to drink in this morning, will serve us really well to prepare us even for how we would think about ministry to others. But when I read especially verse 25, this is the verse that God has, has hammered into my heart. I probably quote Acts 17, 25 in my prayers for the day, for my food, more than any other verse. Because it's, it's a striking verse. It says, nor is God served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to us life and breath and everything else. And the reason that was so revolutionary for me uh, especially when I was in college. I remember I was listening to a sermon series by a pastor named John Piper, and I was in the car, and I had a tape. We used to have tapes in the car, and it was a sermon series, and I played, it was a five-part sermon series. I played the whole series. I was on a long drive, and then I just played it again. I listened to all five sermons again, and he was talking, he gave a sermon called Beware of Serving God in Missions, or How Not to Serve God in Missions, and I said, hey, like what? How not to serve God in missions? What does that mean? How do you, I thought I'm supposed to be a servant. Paul talks about it as a servant, but he brought this verse, and, I, and as I have 
drunk deeply of this verse, it had, God has used it to help build my worship. It says, he is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. So what that says is the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth, that God has never needed anyone in this room. That God has never needed anything that he has ever created at any point. That God is fully sufficient in himself and is only, therefore, a giver, and his creation is only, therefore, or ultimately, therefore, the receivers. God is the great giver. He is not a taker. God overflowed Father, Son, Holy Spirit from all eternity past in creation to us. My favorite quote about the Trinity is that we were created out of the laughter of the Trinity. What that means is that in the, the oneness and threeness of all eternity in God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, there was so much fullness of love, of joy, of energy, of peace, of freedom that God overflowed in creating all of us, not because he needed us to do anything to add to him, but because he was full. And so the way that I think about it would be, let's say, okay, the other day we were in the Volta region. Okay, we were up in a, a what's the name of the village? Ahmed Jofe. That's the name of the village. And it's on the top of a mountain. And I thought, how did they get here? And how long have they been here? It's amazing. But we were looking over this view. And it's one of the most amazing views I've ever seen. You could see Lake Volta from, like, I don't know, kilometers and kilometers away. And when I'm sitting there, my wife was next to me. And when I'm sitting there with my wife and I see this view, one of my thoughts is, the kids have to come see this. The kids have to come see this. Not because there's some need in us, it's because we are so overwhelmed by the beauty of the thing that I would like someone else to share in it. And that is only slightly an analogy of the Trinity in the sense that Father, Son, Holy Spirit is saying, the kids, they should come see this. Not because we need the kids to, to fulfill us, but because there is so much beauty here that they need to come see it and delight in it. And the, di the difference between the analogy and the truth is God is not looking out at a sunset. He's talking about himself. He says, come, delight in me. The kids have to come see this, but I will overflowingly give. Out of the laughter of the Trinity, I will give, and they will receive. And so I just want to show you this in a few passages uh, in the scriptures. The first is Isaiah 46, verses 3 and 4. I think I have a slide for it. Uh, but I'll find it while we're working. This is a passage about idolatry. And God says in Isaiah 46, verse 3, he says, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me, that is carried by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he, and two, two gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and I will save. So he's speaking to the idols, the idolaters of Babylon, saying, you are trying to build and carry your gods, but I have always carried you. There is none to compare me to. I am God. I carry, I bear, I save, I make. You do none of that. You simply receive my carrying and my bearing and my saving. That's what you do. In Psalm 50, a... a almost sarcastic passage from God. Psalm 50, verses 12 through 15. God says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. 
for the world in all its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? In other words, do I really need your offering? Do I need the goats and the bulls? Do they somehow uh, satisfy my app of thanksgiving? That's what he says. It's not a sacrifice at all. It's not a sacrifice to say thank you. It's the overflowing of a happy heart to say thank you. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you. I will rescue you, and you will glorify me. And so God sets the table through the sacrificial system, through speaking to idolaters, through his prophets to say, you think that this is a give and take relationship. You think that what's going on here is I give you some and you pay me back some. But what's really going on here from the very, very beginning is I am full and overflowing. I give to you. I make you. I carry you. I rescue you. I, it is a one-way street. It's a one-way relationship. And you drink from me. You receive from me. And so God is setting this up even as he moves into the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ came, the people thought, oh, now... This, this king, I can continue to offer payment. I can continue to do his works, the great works that God will have, and Jesus will accept me into his kingdom by my works. And then in John chapter 6, in the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus has fed everybody. There are 12 baskets left over after feeding all of these people out of a few loaves and fish. And the people came to him wanting bread and wanting to work his works. And they said, what must we do in John 6, 28? What must we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus said, this is the work of God. You believe in the one whom he is, has sent. And so in that moment, he's saying, there is not a work for you to do. There is only for you to receive me. Believe in me as the final treasure. There is not a work for you to do. And so again, he establishes, his, establishes himself even through the gospel. He establishes himself as the full giver. And so in Hebrews 10, it says, By a single offering he has perfected for all time those of us who are being saved. He has already finished a work in his full giving whereby he has served you. The Son of Man came to serve you, not to be served by you, but to serve you by giving his life as a ransom for many. Okay? That concept changed my life because I always thought that the point of my day was to somehow add to God's, by performing for him, I could add to God's glory by performing for him, by performing certain works, by doing good enough works, I, I could add to his glory. And what it meant to be a Christian was to strive and toil to make him happy with me. And the reality was he was always happy. He was always a happy giver. And with me, even though he was previously hostile because of my self-worship and my self-righteousness, he sent his son one offering for all time so that now he says, this is my beloved son. With you, Matt, he says to me, with you, Matt Reagan, I am well pleased. And he is not well pleased with me because I do a song and dance every day. He is not well pleased with me because I read my Bible for a certain amount of time. That is not why God is well pleased with me. God is well pleased with me because he is well pleased with his perfect son on my behalf. That's why he's well pleased with me. And then in my daily life, he is well pleased when I receive Jesus as fullness. 
I receive him as sufficiency and I don't go another way. That what, that's what pleases him when he is sufficient for me. So even in ministry, and the reason I go to this place first before I jump into the missions part is because even in ministry, we can be tempted to think God will be pleased with me today if I share my faith enough times, if I'm strategic enough in my ministry, if I, if, if I am tired enough at the end of the day because I've worked hard enough, then God will be pleased with me. But that is not the way that the gospel actually fuels ministry. God is the giver, and we are the receivers. And so you might ask, because it says he is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. You might ask, so what is my role if he has no need? What is my role? I remember hearing a sermon, in, it's a similar sermon by John Piper, and he said, God's victory is already won. So you can either jump on board or cop out and waste your life. That's what he said. But it's already won. We just sang it. His is the victory. He will come with trumpet sound, and there will be people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people surrounding the throne of the Lamb who was slain. This will happen. And so what exactly is my role? Or to ask it another way, the way that was asked in that sermon series, if God is a fully sufficient overflowing fountain like he calls himself in Jeremiah 2. He is a fountain of living waters. If he is a fountain overflowing from his own fullness, how do you glorify the fountain? And this came to me more strikingly because the other day I saw this. I saw this waterfall. This, I took that picture, okay? I was getting a little wet while I took that picture. It was, there was a, a, a waterfall coming down we had did this little canopy walk thing. It was unbelievable. And, and so that analogy hit me again. He's not served by human hands. He overflows from his fullness. I'm not producing that water. And I remember Piper asked the question. He said, how do you glorify a fountain? And he says, what we're tempted to do is to say, I'm going to walk over to my own little muddy puddle of righteousness. And I'm going to dip into it. And I'm going to walk back over, we'll say at the bottom of the pool of this waterfall, and I'm going to say, here is my muddy righteousness, okay? Tainted with self-centeredness, not really concerned with you as much as it is for me. It's performative. I don't say the right words. I don't think the right thoughts, but I'm kind of trying, and I'm going to dump this into the pool. And he said, you know what the fountain says? He said, no, thank you. I don't need you to taint my pool. And, and our response is, I remember Piper said this, he goes, I sweat. I sweat for it. Right? I sweat. Like, like I worked hard. And the fountain says, I don't care. I don't need you to just work hard. That's not the point. The point is that I am full and you receive from me. So the way that you glorify the fountain, the way that you glorify the waterfall is you get up underneath the waterfall and you drink from the waterfall. You get refreshed by the waterfall. You bathe in the waterfall. You feel the fullness of the gospel of Christ for you that has nothing to do with you. You're exhilarated by the waterfall. So, so I just want to show you this picture. <laughs> I don't know if we have the actual video. Fifi, do we have the actual video? Can we play it? Does it work? Yes. Please work. Oh, it would be my favorite thing. Is does it work? Uh, here we go. We can at least hear him. That is Uncle O. That's Ousu. 
he was a wild man at that waterfall. And he was just going, Whoa! like the whole time. And, and I thought to myself, this is how you glorify a waterfall. Okay, this is how. You, you look at it and you're in awe of it. You get the chills because of it. You get up underneath it. That's my daughter enjoying the waterfall. The only difference to me between how we would actually glorify the waterfall and what Ousu and what Annie are doing is that we're not facing the camera posing for anybody. We're just enamored by the waterfall. We drink of the waterfall. We get on our face and we drink of pure water. You bathe in the waterfall. And the waterfall gets all the glory because the, the waterfall is glorious. But your glory has nothing to do with it. You come and wash off whatever lack of glory you have under the waterfall. Okay? That's, and, and I just want, every day, I want to feel how sweet it is that God has said in his gospel. God could be whoever he wants to be. And this is who God is. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, an eternal, overflowing fountain of kindness to you. That is who God is. He shows it in the sending of his Son. That's who he is. And so I want you to taste this as the best of news. You can drink from him, and that is how he is glorified. And drink again. So now we go, we turn ourselves, so let's say from vertical to horizontal, and we ask, okay, so what do we do here? What do we do here with the people? How do we do the ministry thing? Because Acts is about Paul in Athens, and I'll, and I'll hurry now. And we say the gospel for them, if we're, if we're saying beware of serving God in missions, how not to serve God in missions, and still we want his name to be honored, what does that look like? Okay? And I think the answer is something like this. If the waterfall is that sweet, if the fountain is that sweet, then the overflowing that happens to me, into me, just pours over into other people. And I say, they have got to know this. They've got to know this. I'm compelled for them to know this good news. Whatever it is that they are trying to, whatever song and dance, whatever, whatever performing work they're trying to do, whatever that, that kid on the campus who's, that he was a, a 400, I think, trying to read his Bible so that his mom would be pleased with him. Whatever that is, that thing, I, I want that to die so that they can taste the, the fullness of God in his gospel. And that's why Paul goes to Athens ultimately. Yes, he had a commission from God to go where the gospel had not yet been named. But when you read, I just want to read from the lens of one who has drunk and is drinking from the fountain. And I'll make a few observations and we'll be done. So we look starting in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So I just want to make an observation about Paul here and say, first of all, he's in Athens because he had to go to Athens. Like he, he had to move away from the rabble rousers that were in Berea. He's just waiting for Silas and Timothy in Athens. But while he's in Athens, he could just take a holiday. But while he's in Athens, he gets his eyes up and he looks around and his spirit is provoked because it says he saw that the city was full of idols. And so when I read that, I think, is my spirit provoked? Do I get my eyes up, first of all? Do I notice? Do I notice? Do I just, do I just go work? Do I go find a meal? Do I go to a market? Do I, as I'm driving, trying to survive, do I, do I get my eyes up? Do I see what's there? And is my spirit provoked? Because if the city is full of idols, that means they are not freely and happily drinking from the fountain. 
Do I notice? Is my spirit provoked? While I'm waiting, wherever I am, am I watching, noticing that idol to an unknown God, noticing what the Stoics and the Epicureans are saying, noticing what the Jews are saying? Am I reasoning with them? So are you watching is the first question, the, my first observation about Paul. He was, he was watching and he was provoked. Were you, are you watching in order to be provoked? The second question is, namely, what are Akra's idols? He noted that the, the city of Athens was full of idols. When you look here, do you look around the city and say, this city is full of idols? I would argue that most cities in the world in some way are full of idols. I've talked to Pastor Sam quite a bit about the idols of Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, where we live, even under the name of Christ. Do you notice that there are idols in this city? What are the things that you would say the people of Accra worship in ignorance? Yesterday or two days, a few days ago, I was driving. We were going down this road toward, I think we were going toward Dodowa. And is that how I say it? Dodowa, is that good? Okay. And I saw a business. And the business's name was Focus on Jesus Beauty Salon. And I thought, hmm, how do those things go together? It was Focus on Jesus. And there was a picture of, of these women, uh, you know, dolled up with the, the, the makeup on. It said, Focus on Jesus Beauty Salon. And I thought, they, those almost seem contradictory to one another, right? Like, Focus on Jesus and then the beauty. And I was talking to Pastor about it, trying to understand a little bit, because I saw another one that was like, um, by thy grace alone, the almighty furniture uh, is like that. And I saw another one that said, fear thou not beans. Uh, and I thought, now, now for a foreigner like me, that's probably smart. Fear thou not, you're about to eat these beans. But I saw all these businesses and I thought, what is going on here? And it, and it struck me, especially as we were talking, that there is a, there's a facade of religiosity but the reason people name, at least now, first of all, if you own Focus on Jesus Beauty Salon, <laughs> I don't know your actual motivations. I'm just, this is just, a, this is an analogy, okay, a lesson, so I'm sorry if that's you. Maybe you need to be convicted, maybe you don't. But he, what we said was, uh, what Pastor was saying was that someone will name their business that in order to basically do, it's like an offering to God. It's like a religious offering to God so that he will bless their business. And so you name it something that has nothing to do with your product. The only one I saw that worked was it said, the Solid Rock Cement Block Company. And I thought, yes, that one works. I get it. I get it. But, but when I saw it, and I'm asking myself, what are across idols? What do I see as the idols here? What is my spirit provoked by? And I, I want to confess to you that even when I'm reading those signs, some of it is just an intellectual activity. I'm just thinking, ooh, I'm learning a new culture, but I'm not provoked because say, they're not drinking from the fountain. I want them to drink what I have drunk. I want them to drink the sweetness of the waterfall that is the gospel of Jesus. So my spirit's provoked. But these were the idols that I saw, and I'll, I'm getting over time, so we'll move. One is religion itself. One is religion itself, as a few of us talked the other day. Namely, I'm going to present an offering to appease God so that he will bless me. I will present an offering to him. And God says, do I drink the blood of goats? I feed on the flesh of, or feed on the flesh of goats and drink the, the blood of bulls? I don't need that. I have made an offering in Jesus once for all. Will you take it and not have to perform for the Most High again? 
Will you take it? Religion itself, this idea that all of the good works I do are somehow offerings to appease the God who has already been pleased in Jesus if I would but believe in him instead of trying to work the works of God. That's the first idol. The second idol is God's blessings. Not God himself, but God's blessings. If I offer to God, he will bless my business. But not necessarily that I will taste the treasure himself that I will know who he is. Because if you read Acts 17 and get to verse 28 or verse 27, when God made people, he made them, verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Find him. It goes on to say, he is not out of the imagination of people. God is God, full stop. You are not, full stop, and he is not simply a genie that you rub the lamp so he will do your bidding if you obey him in the right ways. God says, come and find me as I am. I am the fountain. I am the waterfall overflowing. And so, we watch, we see the idols, and then I just ask you again, is your spirit provoked? Is your spirit provoked, not simply in anger, but even in compassion, as you see the harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, as you see people who use the name of Jesus but aren't drinking from the fountain, but rather using the name of Jesus to present their religious offerings and get some sort of blessing back? Is your spirit provoked? And you think, how can God use me to be part of them hearing about the fountain? How can they be exhilarated like a wusu by the waterfall? How can they be freed for the first time by the waterfall? And then, after Paul sees this, he sees that he, he looks at the city, he sees their idols, he's provoked by their idols, he learns how to speak their language. Okay? He learns how to speak their language. And I don't just mean Greek, I don't just mean tree. He doesn't actually use that much scripture in Acts 17, which is striking. With the Jews, he's reading in, from the scriptures, he's persuading them from the scriptures. But in Acts, he, he does 17, because he's speaking to a group of Gentiles who are philosophers, he uses their words. He uses their language. He actually quotes their poets and their philosophers in this little mini-sermon. And so I think the question to ask ourselves is, what is the religious language of your people? What is the language of your people? How do you speak it? Maybe it's just the Bible. This is a, a Christian people by name, mostly. Not all. Mostly. Maybe it's the language of blessing. Maybe it's the language of prosperity, of treasures. Our mission statement at our home church is helping broken people treasure Jesus. And the reason we chose that word treasure is because it's a wealthy group of people, and we want to show them that the true treasure is in Jesus. Right? He is the treasure hidden in the field. And so how do we learn to speak the language that the people of Accra will resonate with, but also see that they trace the sunbeams back to the sun? And they come to see who Jesus really is. In other words, if you want to ask the question, how do I, if you're going to do some application in your missional family or come home today, you ask yourself the question, what are the core concerns of this group of people? What are the heart concerns of these people, and how does Jesus answer those concerns in the gospel? Not simply just by giving monetary blessings or health, but how does he answer those finally and eternally in the gospel? And then learn to speak that language so that people would hear. And then finally, 
I just want you to see that even when Paul was learning to speak their language, he did not shy away from the truth. He did not just have a fun philosophical conversation with the people in the Areopagus. Even though they liked to hear new things and he had a new teaching, he was very clear. He preached on Jesus Christ. He preached on the resurrection, which to people who don't believe in resurrection, that's crazy. But he preached directly on, on the resurrection enough that they mocked him. He was not afraid to speak of the judgment. He was certainly not afraid to speak of the person of Christ. And so when you read their responses, and this is in the end, I think I have a slide, verses 32 to 34. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. They said, You're, th what does this babbler say? He's talking about of the bodily resurrection of a man who is apparently God's servant. I don't believe that. They mocked him. Others said, we will hear you again about this. And some joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius and a woman named Damaris and others. So you have three groups of people. Some mocked. They said, this was an affront to me. You said that I worship this God in ignorance. And they mocked. Some said, either, I don't really want to talk about it, but I'm going to say that I do, so I'll hear you again about this. But maybe they were actually interested. They're like, yes, we've begun a conversation. I want to continue it. And then there's a third group who says, I believe. That is powerful. I want to drink from the, the fountain of God who is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. I want that truth. I want to know this Jesus who rose from the dead. Now, to you, I just want to say that if you are having a conversation with someone about Jesus and, there's, and they don't have one of these responses that's either, I don't like this and I'm going to tell you so, or I want to talk more, or I believe it may be that you're not preaching the gospel boldly enough. If they're simply, if they think, yeah, we're good. You said this, you said the same thing I'm saying, and you know that you're not saying the same thing, that has to be made clear, even if it risks mockery. Even if it risks them ending a relationship with you. We love them toward the fountain. We don't, we don't become brash and abrasive just because, but we don't make up like-mindedness so that we can maintain our relationship. We want them to know the fountain. They don't need to know us. Not the same way they need to know the fountain. So we want to build relationships. If, if, if a student says to me, I will hear you again about this, then I say, wonderful. When can we talk again? Let's talk again. I want to show you the beauty of the fullness of the fountain, who is the Trinitarian God. But if they say, yeah, I think, I think we're saying the same thing, and you know that you're not, that's a moment to say, I want to be clear. We are not saying the same thing. I am saying that there is one God overall. He has sent his son, Jesus Christ, as a single offering, and there is no other offering for him. He can only be pleased, and he can only, your, his wrath will only be taken from you through the perfect substitutionary life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And your life is about worshiping the one who created the world and is not served by your hands. You did not think him up, and you, he is not a genie to you. You do not exist. God does not exist simply to give you material blessings. That needs to be clear. As you love them well towards the good news that is the fountain of the gospel. Okay, let's pray together. Father God, I cannot express the magnitude of the goodness and the fullness and the sufficiency of who you are. I thank you that you are an overflowing fountain, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, 
of power, of mercy, of joy, of grace, of kindness. You have shown that so fully and sufficiently and finally in your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that we would be overcome with joy and freedom because of it. I pray that our spirits will be provoked when we look out at the city and we realize that there are many who think otherwise about how offer their religious offerings to you instead of being satisfied with the single offering in Jesus. There are many who think that really what they, they could be satisfied with is your gifts, but not you yourself, that they would, I pray that as it says in the, in the text, that they would seek for you and find you, not formed by the art and imagination of man, that you are no idol, you carry us. It says in Psalm fifty fifteen. Call to me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you will honor or glorify me. And I pray that we would be happily rescued by you, and we would be happily participating in your rescue of others here in Accra. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.